Well, good evening, everybody. Good to see everybody. As always, it's a blessing to be able to be used by God in His pulpit. Today, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 21. So if you guys want to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 21, we'll be doing the whole chapter today. And the topic for today is going to be holiness of the priests. And the objective, the general objective this evening is going to be maintaining the highest of standards for the priesthood for the glory of God. And specifically, the objective is the priesthood was a privileged position, and every effort was to be taken in the priest to be blameless and good stewards of the ministry. My thesis for this evening is going to be understanding the importance of setting and maintaining the standard for those to follow and not wavering from it. So our outline, we're going to do number one, regulations for the priest. That's going to be verses one to nine. Then number two, regulations for the high priest, verses 10 to 16. And then regulations for descendants of priests with defects. And that's going to be 17 to verse 24, the end of the chapter. So if you would stand with me in honor of reading God's word, I'm going to read the whole chapter and then you may be seated. So Leviticus chapter 21, this is what the infallible word of the Lord says. Then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother and his father and his son and his daughter and his brother, also for his virgin sister who is near to him because she has no husband for her he may defile himself. He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make any baldness on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God. So they shall be holy." They shall not take a woman who is profane by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. You shall consecrate him, therefore, for he offers the food of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctifies you, am holy. Also, the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire." The priest who is highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any dead person, nor defile himself even for his father or his mother, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord." He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or one who is profaned by harlotry. These he may not take, but rather he is to marry a virgin of his own people so that he will not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron saying, no man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a defect shall approach. 
a blind man or a lame man or he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man among the descendants of Aaron, the priest who has a defect, is to come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy. Only he shall not go into the veil or come near the altar because he has a defect, so that he will not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It is a privilege to serve the Lord God Almighty. There is no greater honor that is placed upon anyone in this life than to serve the Lord God Almighty. And we know that every person who is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb is to respond with a life that is devoted to the very one who gave himself for them. They are to respond with a life of service to the very one who set them apart. And this was the case with every Israelite as well. They were a chosen people, just like the church. And they were to be a peculiar people, just like the church. And this means that they were to be greatly different than the rest of the peoples of the world that were surrounding them. We also know that our God is indeed a God of order. And His people were to be a people of order as well. And in order to have order, there must be good leadership. The success of any organization, institution, team, group, nation, or etc., hinges hinges on whether or not that there is good leadership. Is there exceptions to the rules? Of course there is. But even with the exceptions to the rules, someone usually rises up that is a good leader, right? So this principle is first seen within the home. Good leadership is the heartbeat of any of these things. A house in order is a house you'll find that has good leadership. And as I was preparing and meditating on this message, I was confronted with something as I often am. God always hits me very, very hard. And essentially, I was humiliated before the God of my salvation. What does that mean? Why am I saying that? Well, as a servant of the Lord, and as a servant in my particular household at 38 Raymond Street, the family that God has provided for me and given me, And as a servant in this particular body of Christ here at Bible Baptist Church, I am reminded so often of my failures and my shortcomings. I am reminded that I can be and should be so much of a better servant both to my family, to you guys here at this church, and essentially wherever I am, and ultimately all this unto the Lord. You know, when I read Scripture and I study Scripture, I never finish with the sense of thinking, great job, Mike, you're doing so good. But rather, I always finish with knowing that I ought to be doing so much better. And I don't say this to be like, whoa, what is he talking about? Has he done something really, really bad? No, I'm not talking about that. 
I'm saying, when I look at Scripture, I still see that I fail so much and that I can be so much better. And I'm going to say that this is both good and not so good. So it's good in the sense that every time we are taught by God and enlightened by His Word, that's exactly what His Word does for us, we ought always to be humiliated in one sense because we fall so incredibly short of His righteous standards. And yet, we are reminded, I am reminded, that despite all of this, we are a forgiven people and we are made whole in Christ. In other words, we are reminded of His goodness and His kindness towards us. As Romans tells us, without His goodness and kindness, none of us would be saved. It is good because we are reminded of our frame and how we have not arrived, nor will we in this life, and that there is an opportunity to grow and humble ourselves before Him and thank Him for the greatness of His love, the greatness of His forgiveness, and the very long list of other things. But it's not so good because we're called to be good, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. It is not so good because the very fact of our standing before Him is that of one who is declared righteous and not because it's me and not because it's you, but solely on the merits of the righteous one, Jesus. It's not so good because we have such a great motivation before us to be good for His glory. And what is this motivation? That He did it all, did He not, church? Every single bit of it, and all to Him I owe, blessed be the name of the Lord. So what can we take from another passage that seems to be a lot more of the same stuff that we've been learning and seeing. Well, I want to just call your attention again back to what I said, general objective, the importance of maintaining the highest standards for the priesthood for the glory of God. Specific objective, the priesthood was a privileged position and every effort was to be taken in the priest to be blameless and good stewards of the ministry. And my thesis understanding the importance of setting and maintaining a standard for those to follow and not wavering from it. So I hope that you can see that this sounds a little bit like what is expected from us as the bride of Christ still today. I hope you can see how the principles set back then are still extremely relevant for today, though applied much differently. So what I want to say is, what is the heart behind the standard? I'm going to say that it must be walking worthy of our calling. So let's first look here at number one. Let's first pray, actually, because I haven't prayed. So why don't you bow your heads with me, and let's ask God for His strength. Oh, Lord, indeed, we need Your strength. I need Your strength, Lord God. But there is a, a true reality set before us right now is that we have Your strength. We have Your Holy Spirit. He is the teacher. He is the preacher. So, Lord God, let your Son, Jesus Christ, be magnified this evening and draw your children closer to yourself through the preaching of your word. And I'm going to thank you and praise you for the honor of just being a vessel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's look at regulations for the priests. 
Verses 1 to 9, Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother and his father, and his son and his daughter and his brother, also for his virgin sister who is near to him because she has no husband. For her he may defile himself. He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make any baldness on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God, so they shall be holy. They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. You shall consecrate him, therefore, for he offers the food of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctifies you, am holy. Also the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. All that we are to do ought to be for the glory of God. And what we do ought to be a response to what He has already done in our lives. We know He has done wonderful works, and He has done wonderful works with the nation of Israel, if we've been paying attention since we started this study. We know that the Levites, in particular, had no inheritance. If you remember going back a while back, they were the tribe chosen to do the work of the tabernacle and the very tribe where the priests came from. Let me just read real quick in Numbers chapter 18, verses 21 to 24. It says, To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. The sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting again, or they will bear sin and die. Only the Levites shall perform the services of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual, stat- a perpetual statute throughout their, your generations. Among the sons of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. All right. So the Levites lived off the provisions that came from the tithes of the land. And among the Levites were the priests, which came only through, not every Levite, but specifically through the lineage of Aaron, right? So the priests, we know, were the spiritual leaders of the nation. And there were distinctions among the priests as well. The high priest was the chief among the priests, and he alone was the only one who could enter the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year. So why am I saying all this? Because they were God's chosen instruments to intercede and recall to be object lessons of holiness for the whole nation. They led in the corporate worship of the Lord as well. In that time... Perhaps the three most important areas for showing a holy life were through mourning 
marriage and sex. We can say, even presently today, we can look at that even now in this present day and age. So let's look at morning rules that were given in verses 1 to 6. So with the exceptions for immediate family members, the priests were forbidden to defile themselves by coming near to a dead body. And for us to understand this, we must remind ourselves of the theme of holiness that is so prevalent in this book. Death is very familiar. It's a reality to all of us. 100% of people are going to die. And it's not something that we like to talk about, but it is nonetheless a reality that we must all face, that we have faced and at least will face with our loved ones. But we must be reminded that death only exists because sin exists, right? So all death is traced back to Adam's. As do one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Everything goes back to Adam. And if he didn't sin, there would be no death. There would be no sin. So certainly priests out of all the people were to be compassionate mourn, grieve, and show their support for those who dealt with the loss of loved ones. But they were restricted from mourning like the rest of Israel were to mourn. And their mourning was to be regulated by their ministry, which was theirs by divine providence. So their calling outranked anything else. So there are two things that I see here. The first is the reality that being around a dead corpse made one ceremonially unclean. Remember, we talked about that. The worship leaders could not be in this state because their ministry role did not allow for it, but only with exceptions. And I'm still trying to understand even if those exceptions happened, how they would work because all those priests were brothers. They were the lineage of Aaron. But when there was this exception, however it worked out, they still had to follow the rules for becoming clean again. So the second has to do with them being set apart and a peculiar people. Set apart from their brethren in the nation as examples and leaders in worship, but also set apart from the pagan nations surrounding them. So Israel was to be different than the nations, and the priests were to take the leading role in setting that example. Verse 5 says, They shall not make any baldness on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts in their flesh. So what does this mean? We heard it two chapters before this in chapter 19. In Leviticus, verses 27 to 28, uh, chapter 19, it says, You shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. So here, we learn of how the nations around them handled death. Cuts, markings, and tattoos for the dead were practiced by the pagan world around them. It was something that they did not learn from a holy God, but something that they would learn from people who were so far away from God. But more so, these particular practices had meaning behind them. It says that these were for the dead. And we know that the nations around them were wicked in so many ways. 
They were lawbreakers, and the law that they broke was a law written on the hearts, the law of God written on their hearts. These nations were guilty of not loving God and not loving their neighbor. They were guilty of not worshiping God rightly. And oftentimes, these markings were a way of either deifying the deceased, that still happens even today, or putting them on a level that is deserving only of God. And in doing these practices, one was guilty of breaking both the first and the second commandments. Verse 6 says, They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God, so they shall be holy. So here again, we see the priest's high calling. They, on behalf of the people, presented their gifts and the offerings to the Lord. And those gifts and offerings were, in fact, the Lord's and would only be accepted if they were done properly. And because they were ministers in doing this, they had to be set apart or even one step above the rest. And I like what Philip Eveson says. He says, actions that profane the name of their God drag God's holy name in the dirt and dishonor the God whom the priests are called to represent and serve. The verses that we use in chapter 19 was a word given to Moses to speak to the whole nation. But here in chapter 21 is now a word speaking kind of the same thing specifically to the priest. So we first see this command given to the nation as a whole, and now we see this given specifically to the priests who were the ministers. So if this is what everyone should do, then especially the ones who are the leaders in worship should be held to that same standard and make sure they actually do it, reminding them that they, above anyone else, had to be one step above. Then next talks about holiness in marriage. Verse 7 says, They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, meaning taking her as a wife, for he is holy to his God. You shall consecrate him, therefore, for he offers the food of your God. He shall be holy to you. For I, the Lord who sanctifies you, am holy. We see that phrase quite a bit here. So now concerning marriage, God commands them to be pure in regards to it. They were to be examples, again, for the rest of the nation. So the command to be pure is so prevalent throughout the whole Pentateuch. We see it constantly. But here we see it even more so for the priests. And the reason for this command is because the priesthood was what? Hereditary, right? It was passed down. So it was always to be of the lineage of Aaron. Therefore, the priests were not to be so foolish in regards to the choices that they would marry or choose their spouses for the sake of not contaminating the family. You know, marrying the wrong person can and often will lead to a dysfunctional family, and we are already dysfunctional by ourselves. We don't need more fuel to the fire, right? And which, is, which in this context would lead to a dysfunctional and even unqualified priesthood, the very ones who present the food of their God. And then lastly, he turns to matters of sex. Well, we know that sex is only for marriage between a man and a woman. 
the priests could not just pick whoever they wanted to marry. Their families were to be examples of a godly family. There had to be standards. Verse 9 says, Also the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. This is a serious judgment. And we know that prostitution was a practice that pagans used in matters of their worship to false deities. We saw this a little bit with uh, Judah and Tamar. Sometimes fathers would even profit from this. So crazy. So the strictest judgment was given to the daughter of a priest who was guilty of harlotry. So holiness and matters of sex are extremely important. The command was in place, a place both as a warning and an example for the nation that God is not to be trifled with. And the reality behind the warning is that sin will take you further than you want to go and think you will go. I like what Mark Rucker says. He says, A priest who would allow a prostitute to reside under his roof would not be qualified to render decisions on behalf of the covenant community. This rare form of punishment was also suggested for prostitution in Genesis 38. This prohibition regarding the priest's daughter may also be a warning of apostasy since pagan worship often involved cultic prostitution. The priest was not in any way to be associated with these evil practices because he was the designated vessel in the service of God. And concerning being burnt with fire, Matthew Poole, the reformer, says, This was the severest of all kinds of punishments among the Jews, whereby God would show both the greatness of their sins, who stand in nearer relation to God than others, and how far God is from allowing sin, and how far God is from allowing sin in those who are nearest to Him. It is repeated several times that they offer the food of their God, reminding us again of the priority in ministry of the priests. This food was the offerings, right? And these offerings spoke of their fellowship with God, which is extremely important. Now, observance of the Lord's table is a unique privilege of the elect, right? It symbolizes our fellowship with the very God who did all the work of our salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 to 17, you read, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for you all partake of the one bread. And we know that the word for sharing here means fellowship. And we need to understand that sin hinders our fellowship with God. Therefore, it must be repented of if that fellowship is to be restored. Number two here, regulations now for the high priest in verses 10 to 15. We read this. The priest, who is the highest among his brothers, 
on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. Nor shall he approach any dead person nor defile himself even for his father or his mother. Nor shall he go out of the sanctuary nor profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow, or a divorced woman, or one who is profaned by harlotry, these he may not take, but rather he is to marry a virgin of his own people, so that he will not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. So again, very similar, but one step above if you're looking carefully. Uh, I want to just recall your attention to Exodus chapter 28, verse 2, which speaks of the garments of the high priest. It says, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And if you remember, as we're going through the book of Exodus, these garments symbolized his interceding work on behalf of the people. He was God's high priest, set apart by God. And the garments were a reminder that their ministry was to the Lord first, and nothing can be higher on the priority list. He was God's high priest and God's servant. Again, the reformer John Trapp says, Hence, it was not lawful for the high priest, say the Jews, to put off his bonnet to whomsoever he met, where he never saw a great man, lest the same name and glory of God, whose person he sustained, should seem to submit to any man. And even though the high priest served the people as well, these regulations remind us that he first and foremost was a servant of the Lord. And concerning death, he could not even defile himself, even for his closest relatives. There was no exceptions, and most likely this probably included his wife as well. So the high priest had to mourn from a distance and still maintain a clear head to do the work of ministry, which we know was nonstop, right? The temple ministry, was uh, tabernacle ministry was nonstop. So he had to maintain a clear head to do the work of ministry because the worship of God takes precedence over everything. And verse 12 says he could not go out of the sanctuary, implying that doing so would contaminate him and profane the sanctuary. And concerning marriage, the rules are even more strict for the purpose, again, of holiness and especially preserving the lineage. So I was trying to think of an illustration, and in trying to come up with an illustration of this, I first thought of the concept of first among equals. We see this concept in the apostles and currently in an elder-run church, but that does not actually make a good example because the high priest wasn't first among equals with the other priests. He was not an equal to the priest, but was in fact above the priests. There was no higher office in the nation of Israel. He was the top man representing Christ, who is our high priest forever. So I just thought of, again, a head football coach. And I could have probably used other examples. I feel like football, there's so many coaches. But a head football coach, if you think of a head football coach, he has many assistants around him and are often chosen by him. But they are by no means his equal. 
Ultimately, all decisions are made through his oversight and approval. And because of his position and all the weight that was on his shoulders, like the high priest, he must be a step above the rest to be a good leader. So how can we apply all this? I feel like there's several things here. Well, I had said earlier that their grieving was to be regulated by their ministry, which was theirs by divine providence. And this was for both the priest and the high priest. Pagans or non-believers handled death differently than believers. They often deify them. They put them above God. And therefore, they grieve for them with all kinds of crazy antics, dishonoring their bodies, which God gave them, and therefore dishonoring God. Pagans or non-believers view marriage differently than believers as well. We know that there are what we call open marriages. There is cheating and all kinds of infidelity and other kinds of unfaithfulness. There are multiple divorces without any care for what the vows actually say or mean. And the parenting is a reflection of this. Pagans and non-believers also view sex much differently than believers. Sex is just sex. It is pleasure. And it's good if any two or more people consent to it. So be it, just do it, have it your way, and have a good time. But as believers, we are to be different in every aspect of our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to 18, very popular verse that I think is fitting, says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? The answer to these questions obviously is nothing. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. And brothers and sisters, God has called us to and for greatness. Whether we like it or not, whether we think we do or not, we represent him in everything that we do. And we have an opportunity every time and every moment in our life to display this in every circumstance, including when we are alone. So I'll ask you a very simple question, how are you doing? And let you kind of chew on that just for a little bit. And then I want to bring you to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And again, I didn't plan this, as Pastor said this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to do this whole chapter because it's so much here, but I'm just going to, I had to try to pick a few verses because then I'd be here for an hour and a half and then you guys would get mad at me. So Ephesians chapter 4, I'm just going to read I'm going to skip some verses here, but I'm going to go through all the way up to 24, but not reading all of them. Ephesians 4, 7, but to each one, and put an asterisk here because I'm going to close with this. Ephesians 4, 1, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy 
of the calling with which you have been called. Jump down to verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was giving according to the measure of Christ's gift. Jump down to verse 11 and 12. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of a service to the building up of the body of Christ. Jump down to verse 17 to 24. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So I ask you again, as I've had to ask myself, how are you doing, church? You know, Shannon and I were watching a sermon during the evening earlier in the week before going to sleep, trying to get into the habit, you know, that last hour or so when you just put on the TV to try to watch some preaching. And the preacher was speaking of love. And if one was to ask any of us if we love our wives, if we love our husbands, children, friends, etc., we would probably all say, yes, of course. And we mean it, and there's truth there. And then he went to the text that we call the love chapter in 1 Corinthians, and, and, and it was convicting. And it was a great reminder. The Word of God should be convicting, it should remind us, and it should stir us up to move in the right direction. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 8, says this, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then the first part of verse 8, love never fails. So I ask you a question again, how are you doing? This is what true love is as defined by God who is love. He's the embodiment of and the essence of love. And though I think we strive for this, I strive for this. But boy, do I fall short. How are you doing? No, there's no longer the Levitical priesthood or high priest according to the order of Aaron, as Christ is our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But the Bible teaches us of the priesthood of all believers. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 to 10, we read this. He says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, that is the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Remember that the royal line and the priestly line did not intersect in the Old Testament. But we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as we see here, the priesthood still exists, but much differently. Jesus alone is our great high priest, and there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And now the sacrifice is not a dead animal anymore. It is not Christ dying again and again like the Mass does. But now, it is a living one, a living sacrifice, and it never ends until God calls us home. Hebrews 13, verses 15 to 16, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Is this hard to understand, church? Remember that I was saying that as I was studying and I was meditating, that I was confronted, I was hit hard with the reality of my shortcomings and my failings. And that it leads me to be humbled before him. Because I know what has been given to me. And I know what is required of me. And I know the ability that I have to do it is in me. Not of me, but in me. Therefore, I ought and you ought to be so much better because that is our sacrifice unto him who gave himself for us so that we are completely made whole. In Christ. Let's now look. We have one more section regulations for priests with defects or the children of priests with defects, I should probably say. Leviticus 21, verses 16 to 24. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a defect shall approach a blind man or a lame man or he who has a disfigured face 
or any deformed limb, or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man among the descendants of Aaron, the priest who has a defect, is to come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy. Only he shall not go into the veil or come near the altar because he has a defect, so that he will not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel. So this is a tough one, right? Being from the priestly line did not make one immune from the many effects of original sin. Every priest was a sinner and had the same effects that stemmed from the fall. All these defects are a result of sin. Not their particular sin, don't get me wrong, but it's a result of sin. These things happen because sin is in the world. So this does not make them immune from passing down genetic disorders or deformities that all resulted from that horrible time 6,000 years ago. So when one reads this, it may seem to be very harsh or even uncompassionate. But we must realize that this command is in place to show us the seriousness of sin, not those individuals, but sin in general. The importance of a perfect intercessor and the understanding of God being perfectly holy and righteous and how imperfection must be removed from him. And we have already learned that the actual offerings had to be without defects. Well, if that was the case, and so did the priests who approached the altar to offer them. We must remember that almost everything in this old system was a type of Christ. It pointed to Christ from the offerings. Let's look at the offerings. Christ, remember the offerings in the beginning, Pastor John went through them. Christ is our propitiation, which removes God's wrath on us. Christ is our purification and makes us clean. Christ is the reason for our thanksgiving. Christ is the reason for our peace, the source of our fellowship, and the reason for our gratitude. And Christ takes away our guilt and shame, all those offerings. And every offering was a type of the one who was so much greater and fulfilled it all. Same thing with the priest. Christ is our intercessor. He is our great high priest. He is our advocate and our only go-between. So because of what they represent, they had to be perfect. But we must remember that even though they could not serve in this capacity, they were still able to serve in other ways and take part in eating the food, the Lord's food, that of the holy and the most holy. They were still entitled to receive provision from their God. Remember that the tabernacle was God's sanctuary. And it was a picture of the heavenly sanctuary where no unrighteousness can dwell and therefore no blemish could enter it because it was a picture of something so much greater, the heavenly one. 
And the best illustration I can give of this is to understand the depths of sin and its power to corrupt apart from God. And the concept here is that of corruption of sin and its contagiousness. Remember that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. A little sin allowed leads to a lot of sin. A little false teaching leads to a church going apostate. A little bit of lies will spread like cancer or gangrene. Therefore, every effort needs to be made to be pure. And that's what we're seeing here during this time. So for application, I want to call your attention to a short phrase that might be easily missed, but it really stood out to me. And we see it three times in this section. It's in verses 17 and verse 21 and verse 22. I'm going to read it. It says, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. Verse 21. No man among the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. Verse 22. He may eat of the food of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy. So what am I looking for here? It's two words, two small words, and one of them is the biggest word. Someone, his God, amen. Who's God but his God? And that hit me really, really hard. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, God would respond or communicate to the people in accordance to their obedience or disobedience. When they disobeyed, he would often refer to them as these people or this people, like in the book of Haggai. And when they obeyed, or simply when he was just stating his amazing love towards them, he would refer to them as my people. Well, these men who had defects which were out of their hands were still his people. And they still had his great love. And God is saying, I'm still their God. And they are still my son. And I will provide for them from that which is holy and mine. What an awesome God. We know that God is no respecter of persons and that he shows no personal favoritism to anybody. Concerning the Gentiles, Peter says this in Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. It says, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. In other words, it's not just about us, the Jews. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Then going back all the way to where we are in this text in Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verse 17 to 18. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. God is the God of his people, regardless of their disabilities or their talents or their social status. Even more so, 
He is the Father of His people. Most of the time, or at the very least oftentimes, God saves those who are not very special in and of themselves. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthian church in chapter 1 of the first book. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So church, I really, really love that phrase, his God. I know my shortcomings. I know my sin. I know my weaknesses. And I know the things I deal with that are out of my hands as well. And yet I know that my God is still the same. And my acceptance before him is based on none of these things, but solely on his goodness and kindness that was displayed to me. And therefore I can proclaim with a loud voice, he is my God. And so can you. But now what? I had mentioned that there is a heart behind my thesis, which was the importance of setting and maintaining the standard for those to follow and not wavering from it. And that the heart must be walking worthy of our calling. So I'll ask you a question as I ask myself very simply, are you walking worthy, church? Meditate on that. Think about that. Are you being what you have been saved for? Let me close with Ephesians chapter 4 again, verse 1 to 6, because God's word is powerful. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness. That's the only way to do it. With patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent, strong word, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, I think of the song. Thank you, Lord, for saving our souls. Thank you, Lord, for making us whole.
and thank you, Lord, for giving to us our great salvation, so rich and free. Lord, help us. We beg of you that you would help us to be better vessels, to be better representatives of you, to walk worthy of this great, amazing, wonderful calling that you declared before the foundations of the world, which only amounts to a very small remnant. And by your amazing grace, we are that remnant. Hallelujah and praise the Lord. Thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness. Bless us through your word. Keep us. We know you will. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to close on a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.